Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, the forgiveness doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Well, I know that Jeannie's with us, so I'm not sure what happened to her voice. Maybe her phone is on mute. Maybe she's not able to connect. Anyway, this is Michael Bryce. No, I am here. Okay. Oh, good. There you go. It's all yours, sweetie. I was almost all the way through my introduction, but anyway. (laughs) Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, whose voice you just heard. I'm your co-host, Jeannie Rice, along with Dr. Tim Hayes, and we welcome you to the show. Our calling number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we love to hear your comments and your questions because then that makes this your show. Oh, and today is Thursday, October 22nd, 2015. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart. That mute button is a bear, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, we're honored, delighted that each of you chooses to share some space with us every day that you do that as we inquire and come into deeper and deeper understanding of this absolutely amazing technology that comes from the first century in the Aramaic language, a technology called forgiveness. Just a brief thought about forgiveness, and that is that forgiveness is not about how I let you off the hook for what's happening inside of me, but rather forgiveness is how I change the content of my mind that, if I'm in pain, causes my pain. And so that's what we're here to deliver on a planet-wide scale. That's what all of our efforts and all of our resources are dedicated to. And we invite you to take the tools, pass them on to someone else. Dr. Tim, we finally got the uh, the video when we got home from New Jersey and St. Louis, Springfield, uh, we got the video of the Cokeville miracle, and uh, very powerful, very powerful. If anyone hasn't seen that uh, movie, the Cokeville miracle is a story about a uh, a group of about a hundred people who were forced into a classroom with a bomber and his wife, and how, and and to me, one of the most powerful parts of the movie was how each of those the people involved and the admission of the police officer who happened to be out of town, the uh, the people who were involved, how they basically primarily stayed connected to love. Yes, there was some fear, but even those in fear stayed tapped into and motivated and connected to love, coming forward ready to offer themselves to the to the, the uh, person who wanted hostages and, and wanted money and was obviously very mentally imbalanced in the stable. And the acknowledgement by the police officer that part of, you know, and, and he was very resistant to the idea that there could be anything such thing as a miracle that, you know, that love even existed as such. And after hearing all of the, 
testimonies of uh, person after person after person who were there. And, you know, the bomb went off in a room and it was a big enough bomb that it should have just taken everybody totally and completely out. And the only two people who were injured or seriously injured and died in the affair were the two people who were involved in trying to pull off the, uh, the hostage situation. And the bomb went off in a room with all of these 100 kids. And, yes, there were injuries, but no one, no one died. And they interview a bomb expert who said, the way that this bomb went off, it's not possible. It just, it, it can't, you know, it just can't do what it did. It should have spread out from the room and it should have just blasted everything in the room. But instead, it went up into the ceiling and the force of it went out that way. And it was interesting to see how the testimony of one of the eyewitnesses, a child, and basically what everybody in the room said was that they had basically ancestors, they called them angels, but ancestors, people dead that they recognized physically from pictures after the event, people they didn't know but went, oh, well, that was my great-grandmother kind of thing, were there to guide them and to help them. And that this one child observed that these people at the point where the bomb went off, that these angels dressed in white, these ancestors, gathered in a circle around the bomb and raised up toward the ceiling, and the bomb did exactly that. The child who observed it gave the explanation as to why the bomb did what a bomb can't do. It was just so, so very powerful. And... uh, opens a pretty sweet space. You have any other thoughts to share about it, Tim? I, I just, I loved it. Thanks for turning us on to it. The Cokeville Miracle. Get it, folks. It's on Amazon for next to nothing. Well, I'm here, and I'm thinking somebody else turned you on to that because I'm making notes as you talk that I need to get that movie. Hmm. Well, Are you there? I thought, so yes, I, don't know. I thought it was you, Tim. So if somebody else did it and you're listening, raise your hand and let us know how you found out about that movie. Well, it must have been someone else, obviously. I thought it was you, but in any event, it is really very, very powerfully done and done from a skeptic's point of view, but eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness as children. And then, I don't know, 20 years later, this happened in 86, these people as adults explain their experience and what they saw and how it unfolded and how it's impossible. It was pretty, pretty powerful. So, well, good. I'm glad we turned you on to it. Whoever it was, thank you, because it was a great suggestion. Well, anything exciting happening in your world today, Tim? Well, just the usual, sharing this work with people and having, uh, looking forward to another support group tonight. We'll watch the second hour of the four-hour series you did here in September of 2014 up in Woodstock. And um, so I'm looking forward to that and another loving and love-filled support group. And I'm kind of hoping that people call and ask questions because, as we say, that really opens a space for all of us to learn the material more deeply and to make these shows more stimulating. Definitely. And uh, yesterday, Jeannie read a piece of information from someone who uh, was sharing that they had been addicted to alcohol and they gave up their addiction and how their world and their lives were changing. And we spoke briefly about that and that while our culture sees it as a social lubricant, when you call it a social lubricant, what that means is there's something in my mind that inhibits me from functioning. And if I deaden my brain sufficiently, basically what happens with alcohol, the effect on the brain with alcohol primarily comes from the fact that if you take two molecules of alcohol and you take the ether out or the uh, the water out, you've got ether and what alcohol does 
is it causes blood cells to coagulate, to stick together. And the capillaries that feed the brain, for all intents and purposes, are basically a single file of blood cells flowing into the brain, carrying oxygen, nutrition, and carrying waste out of the brain. Well, when the blood starts to coagulate, the blood flow is cut off from the brain. <clears throat> when the blood flow is cut off from the brain, because about 90% or 90% plus of brain chemistry is tied up in inhibiting, tied up in dissociation through denial, pardon me, then what happens is that when you cut off that blood flow, the inhibitors are gone, and all of a sudden, you know, things seem to flow more easily. People don't have to deal realistically with their inhibitors, with their feelings, with the mechanics of their own minds. So it's a, a totally artificial way to try to deal with something that you can deal with through forgiveness and removing those things that would inhibit you or cause you nervousness or pain or trauma so you don't need a social lubricant. You just get to function as a human being. So we suggest that anyone who's dealing with this work, and, you know, I mean, everybody do what everybody want to do. It's not my business, but I'm just offering if you are really truly going to do this work, then I'll just say that from working with thousands of people over the years, when I see someone drop their alcohol, their drugs, and I'm talking about the psychotropic type, the mind-altering drugs like sugar and caffeine and nicotine and you know those sorts of things, as well as the so-called legal psychotropics or the illegal ones. What happens is that they tend to be able to start to see themselves and confront themselves more realistically. And as they do, they're able to dissolve or remove the things that never belonged within their structures and their lives open, and they just become so much more functional. The supposed functionality that comes from using alcohol, and people say, I enjoy it. Well, I don't think anybody enjoys the poison of alcohol in their bodies. They acquire a taste, and they like the relief from pain that they get. You know, you give somebody a shot of Novocaine, or in this case, ether, they feel better. So they go, oh, this is pretty good stuff. I remember working with a woman back about mm, probably close to 30 years ago. And her, she and her husband were, in, or he, her husband was in the business world. She was Marissa's housewife. And she would make dinner and, you know, he'd work till the wee hours of the morning or late into the evening. And he'd come home and they'd have two or three drinks before dinner. And then they'd have a bottle of wine with dinner and then two or three drinks after dinner. They weren't alcoholics, but that was their seven-day-a-week routine. And she started doing this work and she decided to quit using alcohol. And over a period of, I guess, if I'm remembering correctly, this is quite a while ago, maybe four or five years, she didn't touch any alcohol. And then she shared with me in a private session that uh, that she was at a party and somebody offered her a, a drink of of whiskey or whatever it was. And so she took it. Uh, she hadn't quit drinking over some big, you know, oh, I can't. Just, you know, she just stopped using it. And she shared with me that when she took the first mouthful of that, that the alcohol no more than got past her lips and it felt like razor blades in her kidneys. That was the physiological effect. By the way, if you look at what happens with people who use excessive amounts of alcohol, what occurs is they pickle, aside from the brain damage and such as done, they pickle the cell. And when they pickle the cell, the cell wall breaks down. People who die of alcoholism usually die because the cell wall has become so weakened that they just break open and they internally bleed to death. So uh, what she was able to experience was now that she wasn't using the alcohol as relief from pain, she'd done you know four or five years of work and had done a lot of relieving of her internalized pain, when she took that alcohol in and she's like, you know, that was it. She took one sip and that was the end of it. But she could actually feel energetically. I mean, it didn't, she didn't even have to swallow it. All she had to do was get it in her mouth and she said, it was like razor blades in my kidneys. She could feel the impact, the toxic impact of it. Nobody likes that. And anybody who's in a normal, actual human state will feel that effect, will feel the toxicity of the drugs that are used to anesthetize. And so if you're not feeling that and you're using them, uh, give yourself, you know, take six weeks off, take six months off. We had someone who, who wrote to Jeannie after the uh, show yesterday, and to me this is part of the power of community, 
that had never, I guess, particularly thought about alcohol one way or the other and decided she was going into a program of doing forgiveness and, and decided to work through some things. And a normal part of her routine was drinking. And so she and her husband, which was pretty cool because he's not involved in, in what she's doing as far as I understand, but, but they decided they were going to just nix their, their frozen margaritas and decided to just do frozen, you know, (laughs) she's going to get rid of that as part of her healing process. So we just put that out as a possibility. And if you want to move forward, you might find that that's a, a beneficial thing to do. And, and uh, thank you for uh, for sharing that on the show. We were sharing it with Jeannie and giving her permission to share it on the show because we know it in, impacted and inspired at least one other person to make a shift. And who knows how many people it impacts? Who knows where that show gets played 10 years from now and, and impacts? You know, it's it's uh, pretty sweet that we have this technology where we have, gee, we're now well over a 1,000 hours in our archives and people come back and listen to conversations just like this one uh, that have happened over a period of the last five years. So we appreciate everybody who has a contribution to make. And any thoughts, Dr. Tim, on uh, from your perspective on what you've seen with uh, alcohol and drug abuse and or even alcohol and drug non-abuse, just the simple use of them? Well, basically, the this tech... When I teach the EFT tapping in the all-day class, one of the things I do is have people, we start the class at, people start getting in at 8.30, and we have the class start officially at 9, and we have a lunch break, and then after, you know, 2, 2.30, we'll take a break, and I'll ask people, unless they have a medical condition like diabetes where they need to watch their blood sugar, During the break, don't eat or drink anything with calories, and they can have water, and then they can come back. And while they're gone, I set up light and dark chocolate, white frosted and chocolate frosted cake, regular potato chips and cheese chips, and I lay them out on the table with some napkins and plates, and I have people come by and pick just one, their drug of choice whatever seems really appealing now that we're in the afternoon and they're tired and they're hungry. And they take it back to their plate. We're sitting around a table. I'm sorry, around in a circle. And we ask them to sniff and smell and look at and rate how strongly they're craving this piece of food or drug of choice. And they rate them usually sometimes on a scale of 0 to 10. The ratings go from, you know, five to 118 something like that and then we do two or three rounds of tapping and then we have them smell and or taste their their food again and they're just amazed at how they either have no craving for it or the taste of the food has actually changed the really smooth creamy chocolate has gone from smooth and creamy to granular and metallic tasting the cheesy chips they smell like something you would, you know, it's been in the garbage for three or four days. And I've actually had people get angry at me because they believe that I ruined their love of chocolate or they I ruined their ability to enjoy chocolate. And I, I just chuckle and I say, don't worry, because the next time you get angry or scared or frustrated, it's going to taste magnificent to you. So that's something we've used on a regular basis for the last 10 or 12 years, however long it's been, I've been teaching the EFT tapping all-day seminar. And, it, you know, it's, it comes right out of the, the knowledge that when I have pain, even if I'm not conscious of it, when I have it, if there's anything that comes along and relieves that pain, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable that thing is, if it relieves the pain, I welcome it. So that would be my comment. Great input. I've never done that, but of course in the intensives, we don't have any drugs here, so people go through a whole process of nine days or 65 days without any of that junk, and when they go home, we hear all kinds of reports about how their addiction to this or that or the next thing. I remember working with a family back about, this was way back when I was in Atlanta, this is almost 40 years ago, and there were the parents and two young boys, and their favorite family meal on uh, Saturday morning was pancakes and syrup. And 
And they were doing the seven-day cleanse as a family. And so they took seven days to go through a cleansing process. And they timed it so that they finished on Friday night so that Saturday Saturday they could celebrate with their favorite breakfast, which they tried to do. And they reported back to me that the whole celebrated breakfast went in the garbage because it tasted like cardboard. That it was not, you know, once you, what happens with so-called food manufacturers, and of course when Tim talks about having this food, we put that word in big quotes, (laughs) that you can't manufacture food. Food actually grows in the ground. You know, change the definition of a culture's words and you can destroy the culture, says uh, Lennon. And I don't mean John. And so when we call those things food and we buy the manufactured product that has this chemical, that chemical, this alteration, that alteration, this, 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 this sugar, that our, our taste just becomes so warped and distorted that the things that the manufacturers put into it, us, over time, start to taste good. It's the same with kids with uh, meat. You know, when you recognize that what you're eating is decaying flesh, until you acquire a taste for that or until you spice it all up with all those things on it and you start to put into your mind, this is good, this is food, the smell, you know, if I if I go into a, you know, I, I used to be in the food business. I used to have a, a, a chain of restaurants and we specialized in prime rib and lobster And I used to think that was food. If I go into a grocery store now, I won't balk by the meat counters because to me it is such a putrid smell. Now, the average person who eats that all the time, that's what their smeller is uh, attuned to. So it seems normal. But uh, once you clean that vibration out of your system, it's, uh, it's pretty repulsive. But, you know, everybody does what everybody's got to do. So, but that's a that's a great uh, a great thing a good a good uh, tool that'd be pretty pretty cool. We'll have to pass that one on if uh, if uh, Bill Constantino isn't listening. You know, he just started his thirty day forgiveness challenge with folks, and he's doing uh, uh, fresh and raw food along with it. I'll uh, I'll have to give Bill a call and share that with him if he's not listening to the show today, and uh, and uh, he might want to tap use that one of the. Uh, the weeks that he's uh, he's gathering people together, he's got 30 days of forgiveness that he's working with a group of I think eight people with. So, congratulations on that, Bill. It just started last week or, or this past weekend, and so it'll be interesting to get reports and see how that all unfolds. But I'll share that with him. Great, great thought. Anything else to share before we check on the phone lines? I'm complete. Cool. Well, then let's just check in, Jeannie. Do you have anything to share before we? Uh, check into phone lines and see what's happening there. We actually don't have any hands up. Uh, I did get a thumbs up. The person who had anonymously shared that she was um, ceasing drinking and uh, the changes that she was seeing, she gave a thumbs up and thank you for the acknowledgement and and that someone else was doing it. And the other person doing it is calling it frozen therapy, referencing, you know, the... um, uh, Inside Out and also the Frozen uh, movie with the Elsie, the little girl that could freeze stuff or whatever. So they're calling it Frozen Therapy versus Frozen Margarita Therapy. So, And uh, did get another email from another person, and they're saying that uh, they're also changing their drinking uh, based on listening to Michael Coughlin's story. So if Michael's listening... So you know you... Kn- it's you never know when you share something on this show you may not get immediate feedback that you've touched someone or that it's made an impact on someone this is just like three four people who have impacted each other and said that they're going to make a change and it's been just enough to give the other person the little push that they needed to make that same change and so I just think that's phenomenal. And I thank everybody who's had a part in that and been willing to share it, even if it's anonymously. You know, when you call in the show, you can give us a fake name. We just, we ask who are we talking to just so we can call you something. But 
you know, you can call in and give us a fake name if if you don't want the other listening audience to recognize you or know who you are. And so I just think it's phenomenal, and and that's what makes this show um, worthwhile is to see people being able to make a change in their life and to have the support when they need it. So 646-200-4169 and press 1. There's several people on the switchboard, but nobody has their hand up. So if you press 1, you're in line without waiting. And nothing going on in the chat room either. We're just kind of going back and forth. And I repeated the title, uh, Cookville Miracle. And you can look it up on uh, the International Movie Database and and see the reviews on it and stuff too. Awesome. So if Tim, Jeannie, and I had been in your town on a platform at your library or university or church or jail, (laughs) and we had just had the conversation that we had, what would be your question? I know that when we finished, we would get storm as we walked down off the platform, and everybody would have just a quick question. It's interesting. How often I hear those words, quick question. You know, I have this quick question about the meaning of life. <laughs> so we would love to hear your questions, your thoughts, and you know, in calling somebody, you know, if you want to give us a, a false name, that's fine. And for me, you can call me anything but late for dinner. It doesn't matter. So we'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions, and appreciate your support in being the ears that listen and take the thoughts, take the ideas, and sow them and make them available to others. It's a pretty, uh, pretty awesome process. If you're on one of those stations where we can't see you in our switchboard, if you want to talk to us, you can call 646-200-4169. And then once you get into the phone queue, you can listen to the show on the phone. Then you can push one, and that will put a little hand up in the control panel, and Jeannie will know you want to speak to us. We just had a hand go up. Great. 828, you're on the air, 828. Hey, Michael and Jeannie, it's Terry. Hey, Terry, welcome, good sir. How do you be? Great. I have a quick question. <laughs> but I'm riding, yes, I'm right. riding between, <laughs> riding between uh, job sites here, and uh, uh, one of the, I'm going to get uh, the responsibility communication sheet out this evening and spend some time with it. I wondered if you have a, a couple of minutes just to respond to that tool or maybe go over it or anything you got in that area. And uh, I'll have a few minutes to, to listen to that feedback that I'm traveling to my next uh, uh, meeting here. Great. Might I ask, Terry, that you share a little bit, and you don't have to go into any personal details, but the process you went through to me was so powerful the other day, especially in the compassion you were able to arrive at in fulfilling the assignment. Would you be willing to share a little bit about that? I will. I am, uh, uh, I'm not sure how close I am to the destination I'm following someone else. So it, it, was, a, it was a big big thing, and it's interconnected around uh, a lot of work that uh, I've been doing. Uh, well, it's all connected, you know. But this is around... Uh, uh, my mom was involved in this particular situation. And, uh, some stuff came up that uh, in me that was blessed and loved. I was triggered. And uh, uh, and without even a thought, I thought I was doing it, really behaving in a way that was loving. And, and it was certainly better than some of my other uh, previous uh, uh, actions uh, and I had gotten about a mile down the road, and he called you, and, and uh, he invited me to he turn around. I was like, oh, no, here he comes. <laughs> and he was coming with to put my mouth open and into action with you there. 
and uh, go back and read her the commitment because I'd read her the commitment a couple of weeks ago uh, in a similar situation. So here was another layer of it. So I went back and did the commitment with her and uh, and took it one step further and invited her to do a love exchange with me. And uh, <clears throat> it was uh, it was very insightful for me as to what I was witnessing. Uh, powerful process, and 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 I know that it it cleared out another big piece of it for me, and uh, also it uh, uh, clarified for me some of the some of the uh, understandings that have evolved over time here, particularly in that you know I can be doing my work and 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 uh, uh, open a space, and it's going to impact my bloodlines and my genetics. And all that, and you and you help me to understand it uh, uh, correctly. That what what that does is it creates an opportunity and an opening for them. They still have choice, and this is not going to automatically clean them up. I can't do their work for them, but I can open the space for it, and then they can they can have a different choice there. And there was a lot of emotion that was up and uh, up moving during that uh, time, and the space was open you know, for that choice to be made. So that was, that was kind of it in a nutshell. Still there? I am. Yes. And for me, Terry, one of the most powerful steps in the whole process, when you shared with me, and it sounded like you were in the... the space of a lot of emotion with it, you shared with me how the empathy and compassion came in that had you wondering when your mom couldn't look at you delivering the commitment to her, was awkwardly receiving it, as I understood it, uh, that you came to the point of recognizing or or wondering, you know, what has she been through that, that this is difficult for her? And to me, that was like kind of a highlight in your sharing about what happened when you did that? Oh, yes. A recognition of a huge pain body that she's, uh, uh, that she's carrying. And, uh, and, and, and also an understanding that I know some of the stuff that she's went through, but I really don't know what all she's been through. And, uh, it was some good, heavy stuff. And I, I did have a lot of compassion in that, uh, uh, even with all that squirming that was going on and uncomfortableness, uh, around uh, opening up to love, just to, to receive and love someone. Uh, there was that there was that child in this uh, 85-year-old woman that was right there before me. There was this little, chi- little child right there that had been hurt really bad. Yeah, that's the way I perceived it anyway. And isn't it interesting that when we're triggered, and of course this just speaks to the filters, when we're triggered into some form of hostility, that that isn't even visible to us. That's not even an option. No, and all, all you I see think then is the hostility, yeah. Yeah, and the threat involved, and and then to respond the in kind. And, yeah. and of course, when I think about Terry, who's, what are you, about 6'5", 240, being threatened by this little eighty-five-year-old woman—it's yeah. kind of uh, interesting, but but it it happens, doesn't it? But it's interesting, but true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, the responsibility communication tool is. Uh, thanks for sharing that. By the way, I think that's uh, very inspiring. The the responsibility communication tool is really about recognizing that, first of all, every reality that our mind generates, it generates. If I'm experiencing perceptions, I'm experiencing those perceptions because they're what is going on between my ears. My brain or my culture has taught me to think that I'm looking at what's going on out there, but I'm really looking at what's going on in here. So what most of the world uses words for is anything but communication. When I can realistically comprehend 
the reality that's going on in someone else's mind rather than the one in my own, then communication has occurred. You know, In that workshop, we define communication as the ability to take a reality I have in my mind and transfer it intact into another person's mind. And when they can get what my reality is, rather than living in their perception of what my reality is, then what tends to open is more of that space of love and compassion. And so when I describe my perception as being something that's true about what's out there, I'm using the world's way of what they call communication, but it's not communication at all. And I'm talking about how when you did and you and you and you, and I'm talking, at least my perception tells me that I'm talking about you. When I, the idea of the responsibility communication is that I'm going to use words to take responsibility for and describe what my perception is, what's going on inside of me in a way that I realize that it's mine. And if I'm in some sort of pain or turmoil or trauma, my pain or turmoil and trauma is mine and about me. You know, in that situation we just talked about, the hostility uh, filter that was open feeds you a perception that's all yours and it's all about you. It's not about somebody else. And so when I start to learn to use my words to describe my perception rather than what I think is going on in the world, then I'm getting closer to truth. When I can see truth, everything untrue is going to begin to collapse. And so the steps in doing that process are, one, a commitment to communicate. And here's my commitment. I want to take the nine-bit reality in my mind and deliver it intact into your mind. First step. And I make a commitment to do that, to actually communicate. And then, once I've entered into communication, then I'm going to recognize that what's going on between my ears is all about me and that if I'm in some sort of pain or turmoil, I have an issue. And so I'm going to own that I have an issue. You know, I have an issue going on in me. Now, when you share that with somebody, you'll have some people who'll just jump up and down and clap their hands and say, hooray, I'm so glad you've got an issue. I hope it haunts you forever. <laughs> and so the responsibility of communication might not be the tool of resolution with that person. However, if you move forward and use it anyway, you'll get resolution for you inside of you, whether they participate on the next level. Of course, it's more fun if they do, but whether they do or not is pretty irrelevant at that point. So it's ownership. I have an issue that I'd like to communicate about and get some support for healing. So recognizing that if the world that my mind is showing me contains some sort of pain or turmoil, that's a result of what's going on inside of me. It's not a result of what you did. And so there's ownership of that. And then the next step you know, when, when anybody ever, have you ever had a situation where you had a big blow up with somebody maybe and then six months later you found out that you were each talking about a totally different situation? You weren't even in the same ballpark in terms of what you were talking about, although when it happened you thought you did. And most people, yeah, I had that one happen too many times. So the next step in the responsibility communication process is to Take responsibility for making sure we're both talking about the same situation. And you do that by simply describing the mechanical facts of the situation. What can a camera take a picture of? What can a tape recorder record? In the uh, communication, did you hear what I think I said, video, I use an example. And, you know, I've always got a whiteboard up there and I've got a, an eraser. And so I'll set a scenario up and and I'll walk in the room looking as angry as I can and throw forcefully the eraser against the board. Of course, it usually makes a loud clap and and people are startled because you didn't expect me to do that. And then I ask people to describe the mechanical facts. And the mechanical facts are, in, in this case, in the example that I usually use is, you know, I'm sitting at home, I came home early from work and I'm sitting in the front room reading a book and you walk in and you throw that eraser. So the mechanical facts are, I was sitting in the room. I didn't expect you when you walked in the room. I noticed you had an eraser in your hand. You threw it against the board. You put your hand in your pocket. And you walked away. 
So they'd be the mechanical facts. And, and the, the idea of that step is just to identify the circumstance so that we're sure everybody's talking about the same circumstance. Now, what most people do, number one, is they never include themselves in responsibility communication. They talk about how when you did this and you did that, and when I use that example, I, I caution people when, you know, when the audience feeds back to me the mechanical facts to make sure it's a we event. That'll usually be one of the last things I say when I, before I ask them to use or the circumstance or the situation to describe it. And maybe twice in 30 years of doing that, I've had someone in an audience, and you know, an audience might be 20 or 50 or 200 people. Twice I've had somebody who included themselves in the description of the situation. Virtually everybody talks about, well, you came in the room and you had an eraser in your hand and you were angry and you were just rageful and you threw the eraser and, you know, I don't know why you've got so much vengeance. That's usually the kind of description people give me of the mechanical facts to which I point out, well, that's all perception. Yes, I understand that's what triggered it, that was triggered in you, but that's all coming from the content of your mind. And what you're really telling me when you tell me how I was angry and blah, 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 is that if you'd done that, you'd have been angry. But be careful about telling people that because if you did something, it would mean this, that it must be the same for them, because usually it isn't. And so the mechanical facts are just about identifying what actually happened. I was sitting in the room reading a book. You walked in. You had a chalkboard eraser. You threw it at the board. You put your hand in your pocket, and you walked away. That would be the mechanical facts. And then... The third step is there's a place for my issue to come in. I want to identify what's going on for me. <clears throat> now, what most people do in what we call projection communication is, and that little scenario I just gave you is, they identify the projection of their issue. So they'll say, well, you came in the room and you were angry and I don't know why you're so rageful and why you intimidated me so much. And they said nothing about themselves except that they were intimidated, quote-unquote, by me, which is total denial. So what responsibility communication would look like in that third step is, well, you know, I was sitting in the, in the front room. You came in with a chalkboard eraser in your hand. You threw it. And when you did, it looked to me like you were really angry. Now, Oftentimes people, well, I was not angry. I'm never angry. You know that. We've all had interactions with those folks, right? So the response there is, I'm not saying you were angry. I'm just telling you that my perception was that you were angry. And what I want to do is identify my issue. And my issue was that when I thought you were angry, I went into terror. So I realized that I have an issue about terror. Now, most people in a circumstance like the one I've just described want to problem solve. You're the angry person. You're the one with the problem. Don't ever come home again angry, and then everything will be okay. What that would mean to the person who was sitting reading the book with the terror in their belly is that if no one ever showed up to bring their terror up, their terror would probably end up being stomach cancer or something similar create digestive distortions and such. And so the angry person coming in the room, if in fact there was anger, is the trigger for someone's terror. So the idea in step three is that you identify what your issue is in the situation. And then having identified your issue, so the person sitting in the room, I realize that I have a lot of terror to deal with. And then the next step is a request for support. What I'd like is, I'd like some support in healing my terror. Do you have any ideas? So that's the fourth step. The fifth step is one of the most difficult ones, because now that you've asked this person who you think is the problem in your life, if they have any ideas, you've got to shut up and listen and actually receive what they have to say. And so that person might say something like, well, you know, we just learned that forgiveness process last week. Why don't we, uh, why don't we sit down and do a worksheet on terror? And by the way, I did have some anger. So at the same time as you're doing your worksheet on terror, I'll do a worksheet on anger. 
Or it might be, by the way, in case you still want to hold on to believing I was angry, I just wanted to let you know the reason I was late from work is that I had gone to try out for a play. I was going to surprise you, and I think I got the lead role, and I didn't realize you were in the front room. I just was practicing because tomorrow night I go for my final, and I have to go into a room looking really angry. So thank you for acknowledging that I looked so angry, but you know I was just trying out for a play or practicing my tryout for a play. And so now that I understand you have terror about what you perceive to be angry people, uh, what do you say we do a worksheet? So, okay, great. So you sit down and you do a worksheet, and this person uncovers the fact that when anger shows up, their terror comes up, and when they're able to collapse their goal to be safe, when they forgive, they drop into the part of their mind that holds the memory of a time when terror was really up in their face. And, you know, I, I, I hearken back the example I usually use because it was so powerful is one young lady that I worked with years ago who had been a uh, the smallest of a family of, I forget now, 13 kids. And dad was a drunk. And half the time dad was a happy drunk and half the time dad was an angry drunk. And so the kids would push her out to determine whether dad was happy and was had presence for them all. He was a generous drunk in that state or whether they should head for the hills because they were going to get beaten. She got beaten many times and she, she got in touch with this having been beaten so often and having this terror about somebody raising their fists at her. And she actually shared with me about how, at one point when she was about 10 years of age, the cat had messed on the floor and her father told her to clean it up and she made some sort of remark like, why am I always the one to have to do it? And and here's a 10-year-old girl. I mean, think about this. A 10-year-old girl who 40 years later, her memory of the event is, my father beat me so badly that I actually thought he was going to kill me. I mean, think about a 10-year-old girl, and her father was a six-foot-one, was a construction-type worker, so pretty muscular, strong guy, that a 10-year-old girl has to has fear that she's going to be murdered by her father. How insane is that? Now, she's probably going to end up doing many, many worksheets around that, so she's not going to be finished with it today, so this, we'll, we'll jump for a second to step seven. There is another step in between. But problem-solving, which is what most people want to do right off the bat, it's appropriate where I realize, okay, so I have terror around what I perceive to be angry people. So I'm going to keep working on and peeling those layers off. So, dear, you don't need to come home looking angry. You know, if you've had one of those bad days or you tried out for a play, just give me a call. We know now that the factor that brought so much terror up for me was that you came in the door in a surprising way, which is what happened with dad as a drunk and being a kid. So, in the future, if you have a bad day at work or you tried out for a play and you're going to come in practicing your angry look, just give me a call and say, hey, dear, you know, you can ignore everything that's going on. I'm just, you know, in one of those spaces. And, and I don't have to, you know, confront the actuality of someone in that space in order to keep working on and working through my, my fear, my terror. So I'm going to keep working in that direction. So problem solving is appropriate. And then, so, so that's when I've done that worksheet and discovered what it's about. Now, you know, it might be an issue where one worksheet, I'm done with it, and there's no, no more to say. And or there's a space, the, uh, the sixth step in the uh, worksheet is where you offer your input as to what you think might help. So, you know, you've got something you think might really resolve the issue. And so in step six, it's, well, you know, okay, we got that worksheet, and I see what that's about, and I'm really feeling a lot of that terror up in my face. Would you mind breathing me? You know, we learned that still point breathing process at that intensive. Would you mind taking me through a still point session? Yeah, there. So now we've got another tool that we're going to use. And, of course, we've got, you know, at least 30-some-odd different tools that we offer. So as one learns more and more about the tools, then one more and more has the skills to work through those issues. So that would be step six is I get the space to offer what I think a good solution might be. And then step seven, again, if there's problem solving required, then we just do the problem solving. So that's kind of in a nutshell, Terry, the uh, forgiveness process, or pardon me, the uh, 
responsibility communication worksheet and process. Uh, any questions? Are you still with us, or did you have to go to your meeting? Of course, if you have to go he to your meeting, have. I know you're not going to answer. <laughs> he must have had to go to his meeting because he's not on the switchboard. But um, okay, well, we do have another hand up, though. Well, let's go for it. we got time. Okay, it's 910. You're on the air. Mm-hmm. Hey, Michael and Jeannie. How are you? It's Susan. Hey there, young lady. Welcome. So, we are well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I just got some. I'm a tween job, so I had a moment I could check in. Terry's gone, so that's really great. I can talk about him. I'm just teasing. But I'm thinking about this communication sheet, and I have uh, very little experience with it. I may have seen it a couple of times, thanks to Marianne, over the years. Um, and you may have went over it in one of our classes, and it's um, it's not fresh in my mind. But I will say, the thought that comes to me is I've been listening to Brene Brown's Rising Strong, and she talks about the story. And, and one thing I really enjoy and appreciate when Terry and I are in our stuff is to say the story I'm telling myself is that you feel this and that you don't love me or you don't want to be with me or whatever story I've made up in my mind because in that moment I'm taking full responsibility that I'm in a hallucination. I've made up a story because I've learned through recovery that when you start a sentence with the word you, uh, you engage a child and the person you're speaking with, and usually you'll trigger their shame that they're, it's not that they did something bad, but that they are bad. And once you trigger that, then you've got a whole another opportunity. Now, for me, being a worksheet lover like I am, I don't see why we just don't pull out a worksheet at the very moment we start to upset and say, this is the feeling I'm feeling, and if it's not love, collapse the projection by canceling the goal, and vice versa. And Terry does love to breathe, and I'm I'm doing that more and more. Like we talked about yesterday, I have a a commitment or agreement with my agreement partner to do 15 minutes of breathing the last thing before I go to sleep, and 15 minutes in the morning when I wake up. And um, I'm finding just in doing that for the last few days that I'm really more joyful in my day. And also I have a commitment or agreement to do at least three worksheets a day, which always usually turns into a lot more than that because I drill down to get other times when I've had that goal for other people. Um, So, you know, the thing I have, I like what you said when you got down to the part where you said, what would you, what some thoughts you have of how I can, how did you say it, thoughts that you have about how I can, be helped with the situation, how you can support Well, as long as that doesn't, as long as that includes the tools of forgiveness, such as breathing, holding a space of love, doing a love exchange, reading the commitment, or doing worksheets, I'm all for it. But I would think that anything else other than forgive the forgiveness process is rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. Now, that's just my thoughts. I believe that forgiveness right. is the answer. You know, if you tell well, me to go for a walk or to get myself together or call my friend or go do some praying or whatever, my goal and that feeling is still running in my computer system. And until I cancel that, I don't see a way out of delusion back to sanity and back to love. Right. So I guess I, I agree with a, you, you know. I'm in, I'm in full agreement with the Course in Miracles idea of that there's only one single-edged sword, and that single-edged sword is forgiveness. And we are whole beings, so there are other things that we can do. That's why there is all of the above. For instance, I may be in a state of some sort of upset, but I don't really have clarity about what my goal is and what my upset is about. If I enter into, and that's why I said, even in the situation where somebody says, I'm not interested in this responsibility communication stuff, I'm just delighted that you're in pain and I hope you stay in pain forever. You know, there might be somebody who might say something like that to you. I will benefit from doing responsibility communication with them because I'll clarify my own internal process. It's another way of drilling down, of touching into 
the truth of what's underneath my story. Because when I have to take responsibility instead of project, then I have to be looking inside myself. And so my experience is that it gives me an opportunity to to uh, be able to tap in on a different level to my own unconscious dynamics and get greater clarity. And it enlists support. You know, you'll notice that the the action step that was suggested is let's do a worksheet. And so it is also a way to enlist support. So it's just one of all of the above uh, and certainly not meant to exclude any other tool. It's about using all of the tools. Well, I see that it's about bringing a couple, uh, whoever, whether they're partners or just best friends, together to support each other, and that is great. Um, And I will say this. The worksheet is my best friend. It is my best friend. It is. And when I'm insane and I'm not connected to love, I'm going to have the least intelligent conversation and the biggest chance of saying something that I will regret. I do know that from personal experience. So I just, I'm mm-hmm. really, I'm a, I'm a real, it's, I'm taking notes in my phone all day long as I see and, and uh, observe my mind and its thoughts and my feelings that go through my mind so that at the end of the day, I'm ready. I don't have to sit down and think about what happened during the day. I've got it logged. I know what happened. I can clean it up. And it takes a lot of time, but the time it took me and the pain that I had before I found this process was miserable. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity to do this work. I'm grateful for Terry's willingness. And uh, I'm telling you, our vitality must be off the charts because we are having lots and lots of opportunity to clean up our mind, which I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking we are getting our money's worth. That's what I tell him all the time. I say, man, <laughs> it's a lot coming up for to be released. And I do appreciate yes. him being willing to do his work a lot, especially around his mother. Awesome. Yep. So and I thank you. Big stuff. That's, that's definitely going to reflect in his relationship with you. And, Again, you know, communication is a part of our lives, and our culture has taught us projection communication, how I talk about what's going on inside of me is all your fault. And so the other benefit of practicing responsibility communication is that as you practice it, you'll start to shift into the habit of responsibility communication, and you'll short-circuit the whole process of ever living in denial dissociation. You'll just be able to directly, you know, when I start to communicate, in the old way, you really made me mad, and I stop and I go, gee, my anger's up. I think I'm going to be able to go directly there, and, and I'm going to short-circuit the whole process. I'm going to accelerate the whole process rather than having to slug through, you know, projection after projection after projection. So it's, it's like the tools go hand in hand, and they make links in the chain. Forgiveness is the gate. The well, I'll tell you there, but yeah, the, go ahead. The other, sorry. The other tools are the, the components of the gate, but or the uh, of the defense, but forgiveness is definitely the gate. Well, I have been triggered before, and Terry would be in his a space of love, and he would look at me and say, do you want to do a love exchange? Now, my ego wanted to hold on to that pain and be separate, but I realized mm-hmm. yes was the right answer. And doing that love exchange completely melted whatever I was holding in my physiology less than love. So, that is that is amazing to have a partner that's willing to bring you back. And when we both get triggered, man, I tell you what, it, it is maybe the communication worksheet would be helpful. We'll see. I'll practice. I'm it will be. be revealed. It will be. Awesome. Yes. And you know, we you, are Michael. doing Thank communication you, uh, codependence practicum um, coming up in February. So, hey, Michael, maybe you put know it on I want to get good at it. I want to get good at it before I come to present. <laughs> I'm teasing. There you go. Just a joke. Just a big joke. Ego. Oh, All right. You. Well, we're down to the last few seconds. So I'm just going to say thank you for your input and your call. We'll look forward to uh, the next time we get to see you face-to-face. And everybody, have a blessed day. Create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Look at the intensive schedule. Get scheduled. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice and his wife, Jeannie, who present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. 
Michael and Jeannie are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.yagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com. Evolving continuously.